0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, December 2nd. I'm Virginia
1: Allen. And I'm Rachel Zildudas. On today's Daily Signal podcast, Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, joins me to discuss his new book, Lessons from the Least of These," about how grassroots leaders can and are transforming the lives of forgotten men and women in some of the most toxic neighborhoods.
0: And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news.
1: Attorney General Bill Barr seems skeptical about widespread voter fraud. In an interview with the Associated Press, Barr said... To date, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. The Associated Press summarized Barr's additional comments, reporting, Barr said U.S. attorneys and FBI agents have been working to follow up specific complaints and information they've received, but they've uncovered no evidence that would change the outcome of the election.
0: President Trump has filed a lawsuit against Wisconsin Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Trump argues that the results of Wisconsin's presidential election are inaccurate due to fraud and other questionable voting methods. Trump's suit calls for over 200,000 ballots to be thrown out, including ballots cast during Democracy in the Park events and ballots where clerks filled in missing information. On Monday, Evers certified the state's 10 electoral votes for former Vice President Joe Biden. Jim Troopas, a lead attorney for the Trump campaign, told Fox News on Monday night that with Governor Evers' premature certification, he is saying the President of the United States has no right to go to court in order to have illegal ballots examined. He's not saying we have a frivolous lawsuit. He is saying we have no right to judicial review. That's another level of bad. Also on Monday evening, Arizona Republican Governor Doug Ducey certified that Biden had won the state. President Trump quickly criticized Ducey's action, writing on Twitter, why is he rushing to put a Democrat in office, especially when so many horrible things concerning voter fraud are being revealed at the hearing going on right now? Congressional Democrats
1: and Republicans are working together to advance a $908 billion COVID-19 relief bill. The package, which includes unemployment benefits, is less than the 2.2 trillion Democrats were pushing for, but more than the 500 billion Republicans are calling for. Per NBC News, Utah Senator Mitt Romney said during a Tuesday news conference I don't have any prediction how the White House would react. COVID has created a crisis, and in the crisis, the people expect Congress to act.
0: Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, would like former Vice President Joe Biden. To cancel student loan debt in America. Warren and Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell debated student loan debt cancellation at a Senate Banking Committee hearing on Tuesday. Warren, a longtime advocate of student loan debt cancellation, said, All on his own, President-elect Biden will have the ability to administratively cancel billions of dollars in student loan debt using the authority that Congress has already given to the Secretary of Education. This is the single most effective economic stimulus that is available through executive action. Powell said he and others have been calling out the rising student loan debt for some years now, but he added that it's up to policymakers to determine what action is appropriate to bring financial relief during the pandemic.
1: Dr. Scott Atlas, Special Advisor to President Trump on coronavirus, has resigned. I am writing to resign from my position as Special Advisor to the President of the United States, Atlas said, thanking Trump for the honor and privilege to serve on behalf of the American people. I worked hard with a singular focus, to save lives and help Americans through this pandemic, Atlas wrote adding that he always relied on the latest science and evidence without any political consideration or influence. Atlas said that I cannot think of a time where safeguarding science in this scientific debate is more urgent, and added, I sincerely wish the new team all the best as they guide the nation through these trying polarized times. With the emerging treatments and vaccines, I remain highly optimistic that America will thrive once again and overcome the adversity of the pandemic and all that it has entailed. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center about lessons from the least of these. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org podcast today to make your tax deductible gift. I'm joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Bob Woodson, who's the founder and president of the Woodson Center. You're releasing a new book called Lessons from the Least of These, The Woodson Principles. Bob, can you start off by telling us about the book and what inspired you to write it?
2: Well, you know, I've been involved in neighborhood development all of my professional life, and I've interacted with and learned a lot from indigenous grassroots leaders, that there are a font of wisdom and knowledge about how to prevail under the worst of circumstances. And so this book really is a collection of, of, of pieces of wisdom, knowledge that I've gained from them uh, in their quest to not only survive, but to thrive. And so I've distilled uh, all of those experiences into 10 basic principles that should guide anyone who wish to know how to support intervention into low-income communities. And so I've distilled them into 10 chapters. Each chapter represents a principle, and it's augmented with examples from the grassroots leaders. Uh, I describe the actions that exemplify the principle.
1: Well, I actually was gonna ask you about those 10 principles, uh, but since you mentioned them, can we talk about those now? Can you walk us through uh, what those 10 principles
2: are? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, uh, what what i describe described as the first challenge that anyone uh, confronts in trying to address poverty is um, how to identify healing agents. The biggest barrier that I found in addressing poverty is elitism. It isn't racism, it's elitism. This notion that poverty makes you not only dispirited but stupid <laughs> And that also there's this notion that in our social economy, um, we, we, we celebrate certification, professional certification as if it's the same as qualification. But in our market economy, we celebrate uh, outcomes. Uh, and, and so what we try to do is identify what are the, the core principles, the first one, is that that when you're going into a low-income community, is to look for assets. A lot of times, when people come into a low-income community and they see broken sidewalks, they see abandoned homes, they assume that there's a cesspool of pathology with few redeeming qualities. And therefore, if change is to come, it must be imported from outside in, Um, and so what we do traditionally is professional providers design solutions for the poor that are parachuted into those communities with the expectation that change will occur. Um, so the pr- first principle of Woodson Principles is to assume that there is capacity. Assume that there are healing agents within that communities. And, and so the first principle is to identify who are those healing agents. and And then the, they, then you have to understand what, what makes them unique. Um, the, A, they have resilience. They are never defined by the problems that they have endured, that they triumph. They have perseverance in the presence of, of challenges. They're never defined by what they... The other one they have is trust and confidence is another principle perseverance, resilience, trust, and confidence, and faith, is central to the uplift of of grassroots leaders that are healing agents. The other very important quality, of course, is humility, Uh, and also they don't succumb to bitterness. Um, Humility and transparency that's one of the most important qualities that when you meet grassroots leaders who have struggled against great adversities they're willing to share their their their, their struggle with you they're really to describe their brokenness, their pathway out of brokenness. When we have had uh, an assembly of grassroots leaders, five hundred of them they're black white native American hispanic, but they don't define themselves through the lens of ethnicity or race, because what they all share in common is their flight from brokenness to sobriety to a life of responsibility. And so transparency is one of the key uh, principles, in principles that, uh, that, that you see the groups. And so those are some of the, of the principles that I have outlined in the book and describe with laborious details, and then give you an example of uh, how these principles, once they're applied, results in uh, the uplift of people uh, from their environment.
1: What's so interesting, Bob, that you mention uh, how those who are becoming involved aren't talking about race, aren't using those labels in such a society where the left, that's all they talk about most of the time.
2: It really is, and this is why um, recent surveys, for instance, to show you how out of sync the left is, recent surveys of the black community, 82% are opposed to defunding the police, 82%. They don't define life through the lens of race or ethnicity because their greater challenge has been drug addiction. Many of them, I say 80% of my closest friends are ex something, they have letters uh, in front of their names, not behind them. (laughs) And when they have come from this environment, their greatest struggle and barrier was never racial. And so when they come together, they don't talk about their racial differences. They talk about their pathways from brokenness, uh, to, to fulfillment. And that's what they celebrate and they share with one another.
1: Well, as we've been talking about, uh, the book is about the least among us, and uh, it highlights the stories of, as you mentioned, those forgotten men and women in some of the most toxic neighborhoods. And so, Bob, I wanted to ask you, are there any personal stories from the book or even from your own personal experience of people you know who have uh, really leveraged this and who are examples that you see uh, today?
2: Yeah, I'll the, the most celebrated one probably is my good friend who's Who's, who's deceased now, Kimmy Gray, when I first met Jack Kemp, I was with Kimmy Gray and she was a, a woman who was abandoned by her husband through divorce at age 23 with five children, welfare and public housing. She got off welfare in three years and sent all five of her children to college. And she inspired... Others in her public housing community of Kenilworth Parkside. Over a 10 year period, she became the resident manager of that dwelling. And just the power of her personality and her commitment to moral excellence, um, she recruited other leaders in that community and they came together to farm the core and they drove the drug dealers out. Uh, they, uh, they, they sent 650 children over 10 years to college. Um, and, and they welcomed fathers to come back into the community. So Kimmy Gray has now been a celebrated grassroots leader um, and uh, she has two streets named for her in New Orleans and this Kimmy Gray place here. But she is a stellar example of a grassroots leaders who started um with the, the the worst barriers that you can ever imagine and yet she became a national le- leader with the help of jack Kent and others we were able to pass seven amendments to the housing act that rewarded people for achieving against the odds the way kimmy did but but there are all kinds of stories like this there, one of my favorites is a woman who three years ago was um, homeless with three daughters. Um, and these girls during three years of high school actually slept in the car and also slept in the homeless shelters and the girls studied by the light of their cell phone. And yet they graduated valedictorian and salutatorian. And they started college as sophomores because they took so many advanced placement classes. I really think examples of resilience, of achievement against the odds like this really exemplifies the finest of of the American spirit. But we need to hold these up, these achievers against the odds. And there are hundreds of of examples like this that I have encountered over the years with people um, who are using the values and virtues of our founders as the foundation upon which they reclaim their lives, restore their communities, and, and help rebuild this nation. Uh, I'm excited to even know them, and be blessed to be able to, to talk about them and describe them in my book, Lessons from the Least of These.
1: Well, as we talk about Kimi Gray and other people's stories, Bob, can you talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges that people face in these communities that people who aren't in them they might not
2: know about? Well, the biggest challenge is that people face constant being bombarded by social justice, racial exploiters. There's a constant drumbeat in the nation that, particularly with poor Blacks, that because they're exploited, the fact that they're told that, that they're not responsible for their own uplift, that somehow because of our racial past, of course of slavery and discrimination, that if they're not responsible for it. There's nothing more lethal than providing someone with a good excuse for failing. So every day our grassroots leaders have to struggle against these powerful forces that are well-funded that are sending this message of despair, that they are using the very virtues that enabled Black Americans to survive slavery and Jim Crow And those virtues were the family, faith, and education, and work. That was the foundation of of our history. And so the biggest challenge is acquainting people with their their history of achievement against the odds. That's why um, at the Woodson Center, we, we commission essays that reflect in history that when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. That even in a city like Chicago in 1929, even with redlining and discrimination, blacks achieved against the odds. In Chicago alone in 1929, blacks established 731 businesses. that had $100 million in real estate assets. So they were black Wall Streets all over this country. And so the biggest barrier is convincing people um, to, to recognize the rich history that they have of achieving against the odds. This could only happen in the greatest nation in the world, America. And so we believe that the, the biggest challenge is to convince people uh, of the richness of, of their heritage and how blessed we are to be in this country, that people of color risk their lives to get here.
1: Well, speaking of challenges, Bob, uh, one of the challenges facing these communities is the increased push to defund the police. And recently you had tweeted, when you defund the police, it's the low-income Black communities that suffer the most because of this outrage. Can you talk more about how these communities suffer when the law enforcement are defunded?
2: About 10 years ago, I remember the first time in Cincinnati, Ohio, when a young black man was shot by a white police officer because he was running from him and he turned suddenly and the police officer thought he had a weapon and he killed him. Well, the civil rights leadership came in and organized a boycott of the city. They vilified the police. It was the first incidents where they began to vilify the police as being racist. They extrapolate from one incident and used it to to uh, defame policing, period. So the white police officers concluded they're going to be accused of racism, Then they're not going to be as aggressive in enforcing the laws in, in those high-crime areas. And so after a year, the murder rate went up almost 800% in the high-crime Black areas. But none of the civil rights leaders or the pastors or civic leaders who organized a boycott they did not live in an area that suffered the consequences of their advocacy. And so that then started a pattern that began to uh, occur throughout the country uh, with leading up to Freddie Gray and and, uh, George Floyd. Every time there's only maybe 14 instances a year when a white police officer shoots and kills an unarmed black person and usually they're resisting arrest. But again, what the left ha- has done is extrapolate from these few instances to vilify the whole police. And so you have this attack on policing with the consequence, of what they call the Ferguson effect, or I call police nullification. So all over the nation, police officers are less aggressive, and the consequence has been an explosion of out of black on black violence. Um, over a typical weekend in my hometown of Philadelphia, 10 people are killed. And so uh, that, that's, that's the biggest challenge, that the more we vilify the police and talk about cutting the police, the more Blacks are murdered by other Blacks.
1: Well, before we get back to the book, Bob, I did want to ask you more about a project event you did recently uh, called, When Whites Are at Their Worst, Blacks Are at Their Best, the 1619 Project. Uh, the 1619 Project has the New York Times, um, an event that you had hosted with that title. What was it about and what did that event accomplish?
2: Well, the 1619, as you know, was done by these black journalists at the New York Times and they wrote a series of essays. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones got a Pulitzer for writing uh, a false uh, narrative about American history. It should have been labeled fiction, but nevertheless, Uh, But uh, what what the conclusion is, because of America, because of slavery in America, that America is forever condemned and that racism is in in America's DNA. And and therefore, um, uh, all white Americans should be ashamed, blamed, and made to pay reparations. And all uh, blacks are to be pitied, pandered, and paid. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, but it offers no solutions, it's just a, a recipe for just disaster. And so what, since the, the left is using the plight of the black community as their uh, cause celeb in, in, in attacking America's institutions, we felt that we, uh, at the Woodson Center, brought together black scholars that the, the messengers should also be black on the other side. So we brought together scholars and activists to uh, write essays affirming America's rich heritage of freedom and justice and all. And so we're offering not a counter argument, but a counter positive and inspirational narrative that goes back and presents facts to refute their argument that the, the problems facing Blacks today of the out of bedlock, births, unemployment, and violence is a legacy of slavery and, and Jim Crow. That's just not true. For instance, between 1930 and 1940, when during the depression, the unemployment rate for whites was 25%, was 40% for Blacks. And racism was enshrined in the law. There was no political representation. Well, Black America should have gone to hell in a handbasket given those external conditions. But we didn't. We had the highest marriage rate of any group in society. Elderly people could walk safely in their community without fear of being assaulted. And so there are other examples uh, that disprove the 1619 contention that America is forever uh, a racist and therefore the only answer is reparations. The very fact that we released our own curriculum and within the first seven days We had 5,000 downloads. So people are desperate to get the truth. And so we're very happy that uh, Nicole Hannah Jones had to walk back her primary contention that America's uh, Revolutionary War was fought to protect slavery.
1: Well, Bob, getting back to the book, uh, what are some of the strategies that you've seen applied that really have contributed to rehabilitating these communities? What's one or two things that you've seen that have been especially helpful uh, to healing these neighborhoods?
2: First of all, as I said, the first thing that's helpful is to recognize that solutions can never work that are parachuted in from outside that the first thing we have to do, first of all, is not generalize about poor people. Not everybody is poor for the same reason. There are three categories of poor people. You got those who are just broke. They, they, their character's intact, but they lost a job or a factory has moved away, and they use uh, outside assistance the way it was supposed to be, and that is as, as an ambulance service, not a transportation system. And then you have a second group of people who look at the disincentives to work. And if you remove those perverse incentives, they will be fine. But the third category of people who are poor because of the value crisis, and you know, for them, providing direct assistance injures them with the helping hand. And these are the kind of people that need redemption and transformation as a precondition for transactions to help. And so the Woodson Center and, and its constituents It's low, 2,500 low income leaders all over the country. We specialize in working with this third group. And, and, And the biggest asset is that we look for healing agents inside the Josephs that are inside these communities. They are the social entrepreneurs. And then we provide assistance to them, access to capital. So what works for a small number of people can work for a larger number of people. And we have examples of, by taking this approach of rebuilding the moral and spiritual infrastructure of a community, then economic development and job creation will follow on that foundation. And then it's getting the resources to take these islands of excellence and expand them out so it covers an entire community. And hopefully it can be a stimulus for doing the same thing throughout the country.
1: One finally, Bob, many Americans say that incoming inequality is due to racial discrimination, both in the past and even here now in the present. Do you think that's accurate? And if so, what can we do about that?
2: Again, we really need to confront these lies with facts. And, and, and part of the, uh, some of our scholars in 1776 unites We have documented the fact that if racial discrimination and income inequality, then why is it that second generation Caribbeans who look, and and, and Nigerians, their children perform better than white children here. (laughs) Nigerians are at the top when it comes to number of college degrees, income, they have a median income that is higher than whites. The second generation Caribbeans from Haiti, from Barbados, when they come to America, their children prosper. They have a higher marriage rate. So you can't say that color alone uh, is income inequality has to do with color. No one can distinguish between a black from Barbados or Nigeria or Detroit. And so we we have to offer facts to refute that. for instance, they say that the criminal justice system is racist. Well, if that, and, and that's not true either. There are studies to point this out. You have to look at which there are four groups that are underrepresented in prison. One, there are more Gentiles than Jews. <laughs> you have a, a lower Indian Americans, Asian Americans, and Nigerians. You don't find very many Nigerians in prison. If the system were racist, then why don't you have more Jews? Why don't you have more you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't make a distinction. So we think it's important to confront these myths about income inequality with facts that refute that. And our scholars of 1776 have amassed a body of knowledge that we put on the table that directly refutes some of these myths about the country. And we celebrate America as some of the greatest, the greatest place on earth That's why people of color risk their lives to get here to enjoy what some of us have not uh, realized how important this country is.
1: Well, Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Signal podcast. It's been great having you with us. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast.
0: You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe.
1: Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow.
2: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas, sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit dailysignal.com.